Philippians 4, starting at verse 8, and is on page 1181. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and even more. I am amply supplied, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, do please keep that passage open. There's an outline on the back of your sheets. I hope that's helpful as we go through. But as we begin, why don't I pray? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word to us, the Bible. Please speak now through these words and by your Spirit to change us so that we are more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great name we pray. Amen. Well, we spent uh, now ten weeks going through this letter, and I hope you have felt, as I have, it's been a great privilege, uh, not only to, for me to teach this, but also it's been wonderful to hear in your conversations, you applying this to your lives, uh, and you hear that after church and elsewhere as well. It's been awesome to hear you excited about the Spirit of God working in and through these words, the Bible. Uh, and the great thing is, we are not the same as we were ten weeks ago. God has refined us as we've humbled ourselves before him and heard him speak. So as we finish this letter, let us be humble. We mustn't go home as sometimes we might be tempted to do so and look up Philippians and go, tick that off. We've done that. No. We have simply scratched the surface. So as we finish, my friends, let's finish well. Let's uh, 
Now, as we turn to this last section, remind ourselves a bit of what we've looked at before, if we can, to begin with. Last week, particularly, it was centred around that instruction, didn't it? In chapter 4, verse 1. Have a look at it, if you can. That instruction to simply stand firm. And Paul has lovingly and very carefully written this letter, pointing us towards that instruction in that verse. He wants the church in Philippi to keep going, to never give in. The word he uses is simply to stand firm in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he writes to this church whom he loves. We see that in chapter 4 verse 1 as well. And he writes despite their circumstances, uh, despite his circumstances as he sits in prison, despite the opposition they're facing from false teachers. We saw that in chapter 3. Despite that they, they miss him so much and he misses them so much. He still instructs them, stand firm, dear friends. Stand firm. Uh, So chapter 4 began, as we saw last week, in a kind of spelling out, didn't it? How are you going to stand firm? How is the church? He loves them, he longs for them to stand firm, but he, he kind of gives them some other instructions. Remember, this is not a list of kind of cold demands from the apostle here. I guess this is a list rooted in kindness to them that is about lasting reformation of who they are, their very being. This is, I guess, like a list of instructions you might might set out for a loved one. You've hidden something away, a little treasure, a bar of chocolate in my family's case, you know, and you, you long for them to find that treasure. This is a list of instructions to find, well, the the greatest treasure of all. That they might know, as we saw last week in verse 7, the eternal peace of God. And so what a privilege we've enjoyed listening in on this letter. And the wonderful thing is, I hope you've realised, and I know some of you have, God knows us well, doesn't he? In his sovereignty, and his providence, he's caused us to to look through this. And in our little church, we we know he loves us because he knows that some of us need to hear these instructions. You think of just last week, he knows that some of us need to agree in the Lord, as you, Odir and Syntyche, needed to in verse 2. He knows some of us, as we saw in verse 4, need to rejoice in the Lord always. He knows that some of us, as we saw in verse 5, need to let our gentleness be evident to all. Yes, even in the workplace. Oh, he knows that some of us need to stop being anxious. Because it crushes us and we need to trust in him. He knows that some of us need to know that peace, that resultant peace. There were four instructions last week and verse 7, that kind of resulting peace. But the list goes on and the instructions go on. So as we are called to stand firm, he continues to teach us how to do that. We're not given a chance to kind of sit on the fence here at all. There's no kind of, you know, fudging or politically correct, half-baked approach here. Paul has challenged everything, hasn't he? Our emotions, you know, our pride, perhaps our fears. But now in verse 8 and 9, as we look again today, he he goes right, if you like, to the centre of each of us. That is to our minds. He examines it. It's on your sheets there, the discipline of thinking. Have a look at that if you can. Let's read together again, verse 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, and of course sisters as well, whatever is true, 
Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace of God will be with you. Think about your minds just for a moment if you can. They're incredible, aren't they? In some ways, less so in others. But you get the idea. We've got apparently 12 to 14 billion brain cells in, in our minds. If you took, someone did this, I didn't work out this, but if you took every electronic gadget that all of us own and put them up here and, and put all of their computing power together, they would still be humbled by one of our brains. Maybe not mine. And we do, we stand in awe of technology, don't we, on occasions, but think what that 1.5 kilogram lump between your ears can achieve, or others can achieve. I mean, have you ever seen a computer, however powerful, create the most beautiful song or symphony that an orchestra can play? Have you ever seen a computer create a poem that can either make you laugh or weep or both? The mind is capable, isn't it, of the most amazing things. You can feel, you can experience, we can love. We even have the privilege of mourning. These are precious to our humanity and being made in the image of God. But the pinnacle, if you like, of the mind created by God is to what? Is to be able to know God. Paul puts it in this way, in 1 Corinthians, he puts it in chapter 2. It is for us to have the mind of Christ. It is that infinite potential that's within all of us if we have trusted Christ. So we are, to, we are in Christ, but Christ is also in us. But all, all of us, we kind of recognise, well, yeah, that sounds great, but we're not perfect. We all struggle, don't we? We have the mind of Christ, but we seem to fall short of a certain standard that might be expected. John Milton, the very famous poet, wrote in Paradise Lost, he said this, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Now these instructions from Paul, they're not unrealistic. He knows your struggles and our struggles, all of us. But he knows that if we have trusted Christ, if we are citizens of heaven, as we saw back in chapter 3, then also our minds should be more Christ-like. And he essentially is pointing us here to have Christ take residence in our, our minds. It is why Jesus adds to the traditional Jewish, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and strength. What did Jesus add? With all your mind. So Paul, in these two verses, gives six little kind of clauses to show us how this is to happen. How we are to stand firm in the use of our minds, as Jesus and Paul calls us to. Let me go through each very quickly, very simply, if I can. And then you'll see, I guess, how countercultural uh, the, the use of our minds is in these, these two very short verses. But also what Paul is instructing the church here uh, into, into doing. It is so attractive. It's so evangelistically strong in a sense. It is how we can, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, 
shine like stars in such a dark world. So let's look at each of these six little clauses. Our minds are to think about what? So let's have a look at them. What is true to begin with? Uh, it's interesting that it's, a, it's truth in the broadest sense, the use of the word here. Uh, whatever is true in business, whatever is true in your relationships, in the arts, in science, in every arena of life, think about truth. Think about these things. Whatever is noble, you might say honourable as well in other translations. We're to aspire to such a character of mind that our peers will want to honour the one who has a mind like that. They see you as someone who's so distinctive. For example, someone who puts others first, even in the cutthroat city of London. Whatever is noble, think about these things. Whatever is right, you might say just as well. It's rooted in the character, the nature of God, who's always right and eternally just. Think about what is right. Think about what is pure, he goes on to say. Now that is not limited to sexual purity, but it must include it, surely. It speaks about a purity of thought and also what comes from our thinking. So the words that we write, emails, texts too. Uh, perhaps also the speech that pours forth from our mouths. Whatever is pure, think about such things. Fifthly, whatever is lovely. There's a moral angle here, yes, but it also speaks, I think, of an aesthetic loveliness too. The sun setting. The, the orchestra playing. Even the loveliness of feeding the hungry and, and caring for the poor. You have to think about such things. Sixthly, whatever is admirable, he says, or commendable, in uh, the other version of the ESV that some of us look at. And there I guess he's pointing towards our conduct, led by our minds. Whatever is admirable, think about such things. And Paul concludes, doesn't he? It's kind of a catch-all phrase. I don't know if you spotted it. Whatever, anything excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. The striking thing here, I think, is though, this is a command this is not the optional extra, oh, I didn't like clause number four, thank you very much. This is a command. We're to think about such things and keep on thinking about such things. It's written in what's called a present continuous, as in do it now, do it tomorrow, and every day that follows. This is very demanding, isn't it? And maybe you're sat there thinking, is the bar too high for me? Perhaps I might read it in a negative to see that this is less stick and far more carrot. Whatever is untrue, whatever is ignoble, whatever is wrong, whatever is impure, whatever is horrible, whatever is shameful, whatever is poor and lacking in praiseworthiness, think about such things. Now, I guess we all know that when we, we do think sometimes like that, don't we? But the loving call here of Paul is to stand firm. It's, a, it's actually quite, the language is quite a violent, it's a no more. I'm not going to speak like that or think like that again. 
The problem is we have contemporary culture all around us, don't we? And for all the times, they're helping us think about absolute rubbish. Every waking moment we live is a fight to think about praiseworthy and excellent things. Whether it's the adverts on TV and the magazines on the buses, the programmes that we watch, perhaps even the, the conversation in the office or after work. You know very much, don't you, that the barrage is relentless for you to think about what is untrue, noble, wrong, pure, horrible, shameful. Now, it's, it's so often stuff is being put into our minds that is absolute rubbish. So why are we surprised, therefore, that such rubbish comes out on occasions? Of course, there is a God-given ancient remedy that is handed down from generation to generation. Do you know the secret? It's really simple. It's to read your Bibles. <laughs> if you want to think about excellent and praiseworthy things, go to the most excellent, to the most praiseworthy. Feed your mind with such things. Of course, there, there are neutral things, and we can think about those later and talk about those later. But think about such things. Make time of your day to read, to think through, to meditate on God's word. Listen to the Spirit of God working through these words. Pray over what you read. You know, just think about it. For, give yourself some time. Literally, the, the word here for you mathematicians is, is a, a logarithm, essentially. He's using kind of accounting language. He's essentially saying, with mathematical clarity and consideration, we are to think over what we fill our minds with. Let's not make excuses here. Whatever our circumstances, however busy you are, however tired, however ill, whatever your struggle right now, we need to fill our minds with what is good, true, praiseworthy, admirable, excellent. We need to fill our minds with God's word, ultimately. Our needs in life are very, very small, and we would do well to temper our conversations. Far too often do I hear amongst us that we need the car, the house, that we need the education and the shoes. That's not me, but it could be others. <coughs> we need, we need, we need. Now, none of those things are necessarily wrong, but be careful because the word need seems a little bit too strong. And essentially, you're talking rubbish. We need God's word to fill our minds. Virtually everything else is an optional extra. Paul, in verse 9, sets himself up as the example, as he's done again and again in his letter. But likewise, uh, we are to put it into practice, as he calls the Philippians to, because a noble, a right, a pure mind is pretty much worthless, isn't it, if it's not reality within our lives lived out in noble right pure action now that, of course rubber hits the road doesn't it in the choices that we make whether that's at work in our relationships in our homes even here at church and the results you see it in verse 9 the God of peace will be with you 
Notice in verse 7, there's a kind of flip side of it, isn't it? The peace of God was to guard you or garrison you, literally. Verse 9, the God of peace is to be with us. The point being, you can't separate the God and his nature and his characteristics. A peace that will be shining and an attractive light to a dark surrounding world. So stand firm. Stand firm with the discipline of thinking. Secondly, stand firm knowing the secret of contentment. The Philippian church, as we've seen throughout these 10 weeks, have been, have been a model church in so many ways. They're, they're noted in 2 Corinthians 8, which I've pointed out before, for supporting Paul in his missionary journeys. They were financially generous, even in comparison to the, the wealthy churches in, in Corinth and elsewhere. They sent gifts, as we see in verse 18 of this chapter, through um, the man Epaphroditus, And they had renewed their concern for Paul, we see here in verse 10. And now Paul isn't trying to make them feel guilty for not sending provisions earlier. He makes that clear right at the beginning there. He acknowledges they had no opportunity to do so beforehand. And Paul isn't writing to them, trying to squeeze every penny out of them in the future. You know, sometimes you get those letters from mission partners, no one mentioning at all. You know, we don't need anything but if you could, you know, and so on. Nothing like that here. Verse 11 shows he doesn't even need or want their gifts. Paul instead instructs them to be content with whatever they have. Once again, his example is then mapped out. Here's the key to understanding what contentment looks like. And he shows here that whether he's had plenty, which Paul would have experienced as he grew up, and especially as he'd gone to various towns, and he'd met dignitaries, he would have certainly enjoyed the luxuries of life. But also whether being in need as well, languishing in prison as he was right at this moment when he, as he writes. He knew what it was to be in need and to have plenty. But Paul is showing here that he is to be content whatever his circumstances. Now we must realise, the Philippine church, as this would have been read out, not only have they woken up because Yoda and Syntyche have just been mentioned in verse 2, this would have absolutely blown their minds. Because the thought at the time, Greco-Roman kind of philosophy and thought, would have considered such thinking as utterly ridiculous, even abhorrent. Contentment for a kind of stoic philosophy, which is popular at the time, was essentially self-sufficiency. But by contrast, Paul is commending a kind of a dependency on God. It's saying God is sufficient, not me. Verse 12, I guess, shows us most clearly, Paul says literally, I know what it is to be brought low, he says literally, or in need. He uses the same word, if you remember, back of Christ in chapter 2, who humbled himself or was brought low. See, to humble yourself for a Greco-Roman kind of thinker was an absolute anomaly. You would never do that. If you suffered, that was fine. You could suffer stoically. You get the idea? A bit of a stiff upper lip in British kind of culture. But to choose to be brought low was utterly despicable in their thought. But Paul, in choosing to make Christ known and put himself in all sorts of situations, as a result he'd been beaten. He knew he would. He'd been flogged, he'd been chased out of various towns and villages. Uh, He'd been jailed, he'd been stoned on numerous occasions. Yet even though he had been brought low, he was content. 
Now, being content in situations of need, of course, is a challenge. Many of you face that right now, I guess, in various ways. But there is a privilege, and sometimes we recognise we want to rise to that challenge. Perhaps the greater challenge for many of us will be to, to be content when we have so much. When we're in plenty, as Paul puts it here. John Calvin, the great reformer based in Geneva, writes to a very affluent, in, a, in the context of a very affluent city. He put it this way. If a man knows to make use of present abundance in a sober and temperate manner, with thanksgiving, prepared to part with everything, whenever it may be the good pleasure of the Lord, giving also a share to his brother according to the measure of his ability, and is also not puffed up, that man has learned to excel and to abound. This is a peculiarly excellent and rare virtue and much superior to the endurance of poverty. Poverty. Are you content in your comfort, in your plenty, in your relative wealth? We have so much. And, and yet, if you listen to the world around you, they will tell you, well, you need this and that to be truly content. You can trust the world or you can trust God and be content in him. And I guess that's what makes sense of verse 13. If you have a look at that, it's probably the most misquoted verse of this letter and perhaps even the whole Bible. Look at it. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Does that mean I should get in my car? I know what, let's drive down to Bristol and I should choose to swim the Atlantic tonight, tomorrow and probably the next few days, getting to New York sometime before Christmas. No. It would be like, I know what, John Wong on one of his business trips in a plane, you know, the pilot has a heart attack. The co-pilot goes down with a bit of food poisoning with the in-flight food. And suddenly a stewardess kind of pops back and says, can anyone fly a Boeing 747? John Wong steps up. (laughs) Over the cabin radio, he says, don't panic, everyone. I may have never, ever flown a plane before, but let me just read to you Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, if I possibly can. No. This verse must be controlled by its context. That is what has come before. What Paul is saying here is that he can do everything. Everything that God will will in his life. Whether that means to have plenty or that means to be in need. Yes, he can do that in God's strength. He's content and he will not be crushed because he knows God is utterly sufficient. And he knows that he is not. So whatever God in his providential and refining love calls you to experience, he will give you the strength Necessary to be content in that, whether that be tough, that is, he may call you to endure sickness for many years. He may call you to singleness for the rest of your days. He may call you to experience even loneliness. He may call you to a relative poverty 
in comparison to those around you. Or conversely, he may, if you like, give you great wealth. He may give you great power, great, plenty if you like. In, in Paul's language here, he may give you fantastic looks. He's missed out there on me. But you know the relationships that you've longed for. But the point is, God is calling us in both to be dependent on him. Him alone. Knowing that he is utterly sufficient as we stand firm. In need or in plenty. See, the point is, God could never trust me with great wealth. But he may trust me with something else. Suffering. I don't know. He gives me strength and mercy every morning. What could God not trust you with? And that thing, thank him for the fact that he's not trusted you with it. And pray that you will stand firm, trusting him in both plenty and in need. Stand firm. How? Firstly, the discipline of thinking. Secondly, the secret of contentment. Thirdly, the joy of generosity. They move a lot quicker now, don't panic. Time is short. Let's look at the logic of Paul's thinking here. Firstly, he talks about their generosity. Do you spot that? Verse 14. They shared with Paul. The word share comes up there twice. Literally, that word share is what we've seen throughout the letter. It's the partnership word. It's the fellowship word. They were generous with their money. In so doing, they're literally fellowshipping with Paul through his trials. It is that wonderful privilege that we have of sharing with our brothers and sisters around the world as they're persecuted for their faith in Christ. We have the privilege of sharing in their trials as they contend for the gospel. We contend with them. This generosity, I guess, is such a helpful indicator to spiritual health. If the grace of God is at work in your life, it will be seen in joyful generosity. Or as Jesus put it, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And if you are not giving to gospel work, Your heart is not there. Do not be a fraud and do not make excuses. So firstly, Paul talks about their generosity. Secondly, he talks about the value of their generosity to him. Now you see, he mentions them specifically in these verses. He mentions that they're, they're the only one. Corinth had not partnered with them, as the Philippian church had. They're 800 miles from Paul as he's in prison. But Paul assures them of the value of their generosity. His disclaimer, look at verse 17, shows that he isn't looking for this. He receives it humbly and gladly. The church in Philippi, I guess, are a model to all of us, aren't they? They treasured the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And this translated to their wallets. Joyful, generous giving. They longed to partner, to fellowship with Paul in making the gospel known. And we, we, we're a wealthy church. And therefore we must be generous individually, but also corporately. None of us should look around and think, oh, well, he can carry the load. She earns a lot, so she can pay. You know, none of that. If you are doing that, you're missing out. Paul points here to the joy of fellowshipping in the gospel. Your treasure is elsewhere, essentially, Jesus would say. And you're literally not partnering with this church. 
Such is their generosity in verse 18. Paul is overflowing. He's well supplied. Uh, he, he describes their generosity. It's all accounting terms up to this point. But now he ter- it describes their, if their, their generosity in temple terms. Their generosity he describes as a burnt offering. It's an, a, a sweet aroma to God. Essentially, it's pleasing to him. I said I would go quickly here, but firstly, Paul talks about their generosity. Secondly, he talks about the value of their generosity to him. And lastly, he speaks about God's generosity towards them. Look at verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God will meet all your needs. Now, that might not be your desire to drive a Porsche 911, convertible, navy blue, cream seats. I I put that hymn down all the time, but it never works. Your needs, think about them. Your needs in this context, that is your joy, your steadfastness, your endurance, your humility, your peace. That is, you're standing firm. In our generosity, God will supply all of what you need. But notice the converse. If you're a begrudging Christian, if you hold tight to your wallets... There doesn't seem to be anything here. God will supply to the generous everything according to his glorious riches in Christ. That is the eternal riches of Christ. That we can know in and through our relationship, our union with him. In verse 20, it's brilliant, isn't it? Paul can't, he can hardly contain himself. It's like an explosion of joy and, and praise. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So stand firm. How? Three things. For the discipline of thinking, knowing the secret of contentment, and the joy of generosity. And lastly, the grace of the Lord Jesus. We conclude this way. Let me finish, if you like, bringing the letter to a close. This letter is filled with grace, isn't it? As it ends here. Grace is that undeserved kindness of God poured out through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he stretched out his arms on the cross and substituted himself for you and for me. Taking the punishment, the justice that my rebellion against God, or my sin, the Bible calls it, deserves. If we dare trust him, we can then know the, the, the perfect life that he has lived And be judged according to that. We can know the power of his resurrection. It is that grace that Paul longs to be in each of us. The loyal, joyful partners of the gospel that he's mentioning in Philippi. And to us here in Christchurch Earlsfield. Stand firm in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because you are nothing without it. But with it. You can do everything that God wills for you in your life. You you can be content in every circumstance, shining like a star in stark contrast to the discontented, dark world around us. You can have all your needs met according to the glorious riches of Christ, all joy, all steadfastness, all endurance. Grace of the Lord Jesus in that. He then concludes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Stand firm. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do pray in our own hearts, but also for our church, that we will be those who stand firm, that we will not be arrogant and not heed these warnings, but rather rejoice, as Paul rejoices for his brothers and sisters in Philippi who have been at his side, supporting him in his gospel proclamation, but also making it known to those around them. Heavenly Father, if you like, our ultimate aim in standing firm is to know the peace that you can only bring. Peace is, that is you, it is your character, it is your nature, but in your love and your kindness, through trusting your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know that eternal peace. So may that guard us, garrison round us, such that whatever life may throw at us in your providential hand, may we be content, joyful, in control of our minds, and trusting always in the grace of the Lord Jesus. Amen.